wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome. Please share Bleeding Daylight episodes through social media and word of mouth so that more people can kick against the darkness. You'll find our social media links at bleedingdaylight.net. As you listen, think about who you'll tell about this episode. A Church Called Toll, The Jesus Creed, Kingdom Conspiracy, these are just a few of the books that today's guest has written. Today we'll discuss his most recent bestseller. My guest today is the author or editor of around 80 books. Perhaps his most well-known book, The Jesus Creed, has become a favourite for many thousands of readers since its release around 20 years ago. Scott McKnight is a recognised authority on the New Testament, early Christianity and the historical Jesus. His most recent book, written with Cody Matchett, is titled Revelation for the Rest of Us, a prophetic call to follow Jesus as a dissident disciple. It seeks to untangle the many interpretations of the final book of the Bible, which has caused frustration and fear for many people over hundreds of years. Scott, thank you so much for your time on Bleeding Daylight. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, and it's wonderful to be in Australia. We've been there a few times. Oh, good, good. Revelation seems to be a book that many Jesus followers avoid because it's hard to get a handle on it. Then on the other hand, it's been used by others who take advantage of the uncertainty in some of the language to further a particular agenda. How do we begin to get a grasp on what God is really trying to say to us through this book? Well, Rodney, I tell my students that they are reading the book of Revelation the best when they're reading it as if they were reading the Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, or Harry Potter. I will have to admit I've not read the Lord of the Rings. I've read one and a half volumes three different times and never gotten past it. But I've read Chronicles of Narnia several times to my kids. When you read it as a drama, as a story that has a plot, you're far better off reading it that way than if you're trying to figure out whether Vladimir Putin is the Antichrist and whether the battle with Ukraine is going to become the battle of Armageddon and whether Israel and the United States and what place they play in all this, I think that destroys the drama of the book of Revelation and people miss on how to read the Bible. It is interesting that people will try and put their own interpretation on these things and look for elements that they see in Revelation and cast them into today. I I certainly remember years ago that uh, Henry Kissinger was touted as the Antichrist, and then there were others, and and we've heard that right back throughout history, and it seems that people are constantly looking for who do we tag and and sort of bring in, almost like a a, a TV serial where the, the part of the Antichrist will today be played by. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we go looking for that in Scripture? This is really an interesting thing for me, Rodney. And this, I think, is the the magic line that you don't want to cross. And that is this. First of all, Revelation's prophecy, so people think that's predicting things that are going to come to place in the future. But uh, if you read the book carefully and have any sense of the first century, you realize it's talking about Rome. It's talking about seven churches in Western Asia Minor. And it's talking about Nero at times. But here's the thing. 
I think that people get half of the message right when they begin to wonder. Now, Henry Kissinger wasn't the issue. Gorbachev wasn't the issue. But let's just say right now that you think it's Putin. Or in the United States, there are some people who think it's Donald Trump. And there's other people who think it's Joe Biden. I think every country has this. But here's the point, And this is really important. When you begin to see corruption in any political leader, you are beginning to read the book of Revelation well. Because the book of Revelation, especially chapters 17 through 18, provides a really nice sketch, as it were. It's brutal. It's about the whore of Babylon. It's about empire. It's about all the nasty things they do. But that becomes a really good starting point for perceiving corruption in empires. And suddenly, it's not that we're predicting Putin or Trump or Biden or whoever. All of a sudden, we're beginning to realize that this Bible gives us categories by which we can discern imperial corruption, power plays, immoralities, idolatries, etc., militarism, violence, persecution, all of a sudden we begin to see things from the book of Revelation that allows us to critique, let's say, political powers and discern how we as believers, as Christians, should live in a world when the political powers are corrupted by Babylon's ways, the ways of Rome. Is that clear? I guess it is, because we're looking at Scripture, and so much of Scripture we say this was written 2,000 years ago or further back, depending on what part of the Bible we're looking at, and then we say, but this is still applicable for today right throughout history. And if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is what is in Revelation has been relevant to us right throughout history, and there are shades of that as we go through, and these are teaching us not what to look for, but how to live in these times. Yes. So, for instance, Cody Matchett and I make the idea, the claim, that Babylon is timeless, that Babylon is always with us. It's not just a first century empire. It's the presence of empires in the whole world. So I, as an American, can look at Washington, D.C., and I can ask the question, Is Washington, D.C. against the way of God? Is Washington, D.C. opulent? Is it furthering capitalism in its sense of greed? Is it murderous? In the United States, there are times that it is. Is it uh, all about branding? Now, our former president, Donald Trump, was a brander uh, par excellence, make America great again. This was his line, which he sort of took from Ronald Reagan, but anything in the hands of Donald Trump would distort. But militarism is one of the characteristics of the United States. So I sit here and read the book of Revelation and say, yes, we are like Babylon. We are economically exploitative of other countries. I don't have to spend my time criticizing Vladimir Putin, although I can for his violence and his invasion of the Ukraine. And I I think that there's plenty of categories for me to begin to analyze the government in which I live, the state government in which I live, the local government. I think our local government is pretty 
pretty easy, pretty good people. But also, I begin to see the traits of Babylon in churches and Christian institutions. And all of a sudden, instead of speculating about whether someone is the Antichrist, I have, in a sense, a hermeneutic, a way of reading our political government, our politics, our use of power in the world today, and to shine it against, or let the light of the Lamb of God shine against our politics and our use of power, and I can discern the presence of Babylon. I can tell you as an American, and I like my country, we've got plenty to repent of. When we start reading the book that way, rather than just pointing outside of ourselves and saying, they are the bad guys, we get to start to say, well, am I partaking in this? If this is a regime that goes against scripture, if this sense of greed, if this exploitativeness that we see, not just obviously in the US, but throughout many nations, if we see this as part of what's described here, then we need to say, well, what's my part in it? How willing do you think we are to take that on for ourselves? Rodney, this is really good because Revelation has, you know, it has several parts, like chapter one's kind of an introduction. Chapters two and three are, are letters, are so-called messages, at least, to seven churches. And in those messages, in those letters to those churches, John, the author, points out sins that are present in some of these churches. And the sins that he points out are the sins that you find in Babylon in chapter 17 and 18. And so all of a sudden we say, Babylon is creeping into the churches. That's what John wants them to see. So the language that Cody and I developed is that John wants Christians to become double dissidents. Dissidents of Babylon, that is Rome in the political or, or public level, and dissidents of the presence of Babylon in the local church. We need to be double dissidents, not just critics of politics, but also critics of the church when it fails to follow the Lamb and when it begins to look like Babylon. You know, most people in the world probably who follow the church will have known about the Crystal Cathedral in California, or they know about some of the opulence and the salaries of some of the pastors in the United States. If we would have been reading the book of Revelation, not as speculation about some future Antichrist and what part Israel is going to play and what part America is going to play and what part the European Union is going to play, and don't think that I don't realize that the, that the Southern Hemisphere has been totally ignored in all this stuff because it's so American and European-centric that it ignores most of the world in thinking about the book of Revelation, which is just pathetic. But instead of doing that, we have failed to read these books well enough to recognize that these books, this book is for us. It, it helps us see power-mongering and political corruption in our world with, with fresh eyes. One of the paradoxes that we see in Scripture is that if we are to understand what this ancient book is saying to us today— and its relevance today, we actually have to go back in time and start to, to grapple with how the original hearers 
or the original readers would have experienced that. Tell me about that. This is a big topic. To understand anyone, we have to understand their context. To understand a text, we have to understand its context. You can't read Charles Dickens the way you read Martin Luther, the way you read Augustine, or the way you read, let's say, some Egyptian text. Every text has its own context, and we have to respect that. And when we respect that, we are treating a text, we are treating the author, we are treating the person of that text with love and respect. So the book of Revelation is often called an apocalypse. An apocalypse is a form of Jewish literature. And by the way, there's endless discussions about what an apocalypse is in Jewish literature. But I'm going to say it's like the Jewish literature that's called apocalypses. It is an unveiling, a revealing, an apocalypse of God to the people through a prophet. And that's what John is. He's a mediator of revelation that he hears and sees, and God commissions him to send this to these people. And throughout the text, there's all sorts of things going on in the text that connect to the ancient world. The letters to the seven churches connect to those local settings like Sardis. You can go to Sardis today. You can go to Ephesus today, and you can kind of feel what's being said in the book of Revelation there. Even the Revelation chapter 12, you got the snake and you have ancient dragon. You have all these things from the ancient world. It's meant to be read in that time and in that way. And I learned when I was in college a German uh, German sentence that I just love to repeat. Willst ein Dichter du verstehen, musst ein Dichter's Land again. And that is, if you want to understand a poet, you have to go to the poet's land. And those who are specialists in Shakespeare know all about his world, they don't even know who he is, obviously. Those who study Martin Luther want to know about the Reformation and the Catholic Church and what was going on. So we have to study the book of Revelation in its time. And what I have learned is that the book of Revelation is timely as all get out in the first century. But there is a dimension of the book of Revelation that is timeless. It still speaks. We listen to it in the first century carefully And all of a sudden we realize, hey, that's just like us. And great writers like Homer, like Virgil, like Aeschylus, they talked in the ancient world, but we recognize ourselves at times in their characters. And that is the genius of good writing. And the book of Revelation has that sort of genius. I've tried to answer that question. I I like the question. I think you got there too. No, that's good. <laughs> I mean, the interesting thing is you're talking about good writers and people who are able to to write well with something that we can still recognize ourselves in that. And yet we look to scripture and we're looking at a different genre. And in fact, especially with with John here, because what he's bringing forth, he says is is coming from a vision. So it's almost like he's not writing it. We know that in the scripture, it's it's actually a mixture of what God is imparting, but also this vision. So how do we deal with that as a vision that God is giving to John in this time? When I sat down to uh, write this book, I wrote to two expert scholars in the ancient Near East 
and in apocalyptic literature. And I said, when you hear John of the book of Revelation say that he saw something, do you think he actually saw something or that it was something that he saw in his imagination that God was using to speak to him? In other words, was something catchable by a photograph or something like that? Both of them wrote back immediately and said, it's imagination. But it is an imagination that has been disciplined by Scripture. And that John, in a sense, he doesn't ever use the word that he's dreaming, but it's like a reverie of sitting on Patmos, the island, and God speaking to him through the visions that are caught in his head and in his brain and in his mind and in his spirit that he writes out. And as he writes it out, the language that he finds for this for these visions is the language that you find in Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, Zechariah. It is the language of prophets of Israel. It is the language at times of the apocalypses of the Jewish world. And at times he's, he's connecting even to the Greco-Roman world with some of its images. I was quite surprised that both of these scholars, they're both evangelical types at least, love the Bible, Christian people who go to church all the time and preach and stuff like that. But both of them immediately said, no, this is imagination. This is a vision in his head, probably not a vision that was caught on a screen. And it was so it was a reverie. I believe that. John says, I saw over and over and over. And we have to interpret what seeing means. I think a lot of people think, well, if he said he saw it, he saw it. So it had to be something external to him. Well, I'm not sure that that's how apocalyptic literature worked. I don't think that these were always extra, extra body visions that were out there that they saw, but that they perceived, saw them in the sense that their imaginations took them there. And one of the greatest things that my students have learned, student after student comes to me and says, when you told us that we need to read the book of Revelation with imagination, it lit the book up for me. And I love the book of Revelation now. And formerly, I didn't even want to read it, but I see the power of imagination. And I sometimes just stop in class and say, now, look, I want you to all close your eyes. I want you to put all your notes down, and I want you to write a word. I'm going to read Revelation 12 to you. And when we're done, I want you to tell me what you saw. What were the colors, etc." And they love it. They see it. They see what John is trying to do. And it's when they envision this stuff that they suddenly catch what John is doing. And here's Here's something, Rodney, that many of us have felt. I grew up in a world of reading. Well, I came of age in college and seminary, et cetera. Uh, and I read the Chronicles of Narnia. I loved the images of Peter and Eustace in my head, of uh, Reaper Cheap. When the movies came out, of course, I had to watch them. I didn't like their sketches of them because I had a different vision. And I think if John thought we were going to try to draw his images, I think John would say, no, please don't do that. You will forever be ruined 
in what the book is all about. You need to use your imagination. John was in imagination. We need imagination to read this book. We talked about the fact that when we're reading scripture, we need to go back to what the early readers or the the early hearers of these words might imagine, and that they are written in a time and place and still have relevance then throughout history. We also need to recognize that your book, Revelation for the Rest of Us, is written in a time and place and reflects certain things that are going on. Now, what's going on at the moment, we see, and I know that this is very much in the US, but it is creeping around the rest of the world, is this divisiveness where people will hitch themselves more than to Jesus. They're hitching themselves to a political ideal that they think reflects Jesus. Do you think there's something in Revelation for us that can speak into that sort of setting? Rodney, I think that's the heart of the book of Revelation, right? What you just said is hitching ourselves to political powers is Babylon. We need to avoid letting ourselves be seduced into serving and giving allegiance to the powers of this world because we're called to follow the Lamb. And our allegiance has to be to Jesus. Now, of course, we're citizens. So we want to function as a good citizen. And in a sense, we, have, we can be patriotic and we can serve our country in the ways that we think are appropriate for Christians. And we're going to recognize that Christians differ with one another. But when we hitch ourselves, when we become allegiant to the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, the Social Democratic Party, the Communist Party, the Socialist Party, the Conservative Party, when we hitch ourselves to that, we are playing the game of Babylon rather than living the way of the Lamb that Jesus calls us to in this book. We do have the opportunity to read through and and start to see ourselves in Revelation if we read it in this way. If someone is going to pick up a copy of this book, how do you think it's going to help them going forward? Okay, I, I think the book of Revelation teaches us a couple of things. The first thing it teaches us, I believe, is wisdom. The wisdom to recognize the corruption of powers at work in our world that ultimately stem from the dragon, from the evil one. The second thing is it teaches us to become a witness, a witness of our own experience of God, our own experience of following Jesus Christ, our own experience of living in this world as a Christian, trying to. And the third thing it teaches us, oh, okay, so that's our experience, but it also teaches us to speak up and speak out as a witness. We not only tell of our own experience, but we have to learn to speak up. Jesus is the faithful witness, and people die in the book of Revelation because of their witness. They followed the Lamb. The third thing is the book of Revelation teaches us worship. Worship in the book of Revelation is, I think, a a deeply unappreciated dimension of the Christian life. There are at least eight songs. Now, scholars in the book of Revelation debate whether there's some fragments of of songs, etc., and some think there's as many as 16 songs in Revelation, but there's basically eight. And in, in most Bibles printed today, the songs are in poetic. They show up poetically in the in the text rather than looking like prose. 
this is what I think happens in in these songs. These songs are sort of fill the pages of the most gruesome chapters of the book, chapters 6 through 18. And in those chapters, there are sudden interruptions. They're often called interludes or interruptions, where all of a sudden you get a vision of the people in heaven worshiping the Lamb. I believe that these are lessons. As someone was reading the book of Revelation to people, they couldn't read. They didn't have a copy of the text. They didn't have it on their phones, obviously. They had to listen to it being read. And suddenly the author, the reader of the text, would start giving a song and reading a song from a chapter that we have in our Bibles today. And those songs were songs of praise to God, to the Lamb. And at the same time, they were subversive and resistance songs against the way of the dragon and the way of Rome and the way of Babylon. If we live the songs and we sing these songs, these songs form us into people who resist the way of the dragon, who follow the way of the lamb, and suddenly we become agents of the lamb in our world because we are worshiping the lamb. Those three words really matter to me, wisdom, witness, and worship. When I look at the reviews that have been placed on your book, it's interesting that, again, people seem to carry forward um, what what their current thinking is. And so there are some absolute glowing reviews of this book, Revelation for the Rest of Us, A Prophetic Call to Follow Jesus as a Dissident Disciple. But there are also those who are obviously seeing this through another filter, and there's been a couple of people that accuse you of just being critical of the political right. How do we start to move away from just seeing things through our filter? I mean, you've stated in the past that you align to no political party, but if we're reading from that point of view, we're going to see whatever we want to see. How do we start to remove that veil to start to read what's really there in the text, both in, for instance, your book, but especially in scripture? It's an interesting one because I've been pretty critical in my career against the political left at times. And in this book, I leaned clearly uh, some more critical of the political right, partly because Donald Trump was in everybody's mind. But also they forget that I have a whole chapter, uh, a long appendix about progressivism, and I'm critical of progressivism. But I couldn't really find a place that it would fit in the book because it would make a chapter way too long. But I'm happy to be a person who the right think I'm too nice to the left, and the left think I'm too nice to the right, and the right think I'm critical of them, and the left think I'm critical of them. I think what happened for me in this book is the book of Revelation leans against the right. It leans against the characteristics of government that the conservatives in the United States have favored. I feel like I just let the text say what it says. I wasn't trying to be pro-progressive or pro-left. I wasn't trying to be anti-right. But if the text is against economic exploitation, okay, in the United States, the Republicans are the ones who are more enamored with money than the Democrats. Now, I'm not going to say that they're the 
that either of them is completely innocent. And the political right in the United States favors militarism. Well, these are two of the major problems with Babylon. So I called it the way I saw it. And at times I've been critical of the right. And at times I'm critical of the left. And people can say what they want, you know. When you write and nobody criticizes you, you probably didn't have anything to say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there certainly is plenty to say in Revelation for the rest of us. Who do you think would be the main target for this book? Who are the people that are going to read this and actually apply it to their lives? I'm really hoping that pastors, preachers, teachers, students in seminaries who have theological interests will read this in a sense as a textbook, an introduction to a different way of reading Revelation and a more theopolitical approach. I'm also hoping that people who are driven by the dispensational or the speculative approach that are asking the question, who in our modern world fulfills the vision of the Antichrist or the beast from the sea in the book of Revelation? I hope they read it and are challenged and get angry with me and I get under their skin because I'm reading it in such a different way. I hope they will listen to what I have to say because God knows that I have listened to them my whole life, and they're in my background all the time. So I'm, I'm hoping they will get it, but mostly I hope lay people will read this and say, I'm going to pick up the challenge to live in the way of the lamb and challenge the way of the dragon as I see it in our world today. I'm going to read the book of Revelation afresh, and I'm going to say this book has much value for our society today. Scott, I want to thank you for all your writings over so many years, but especially this new book, which I think will shed new light for many people. Revelation for the rest of us, a prophetic call to follow Jesus as a dissident disciple. I will put links in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that you can find the book and other places that you can find Scott and his writings. But Scott, thank you so much for spending time with us today on Bleeding Daylight. Well, thank you so much, Rodney, for having me. And again, I love to hear that Australian accent. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.